On the morning of June 13th, 2016, in Gwinana, Australia, Aaron Page Sweetman was having breakfast with his landlord, Adrian Reed, when he got a phone call. On the other end was the mother of his childhood friend, Daniel. Daniel's mother asked Aaron if he could come by to help install some software for her son. Aaron, who was always eager to help, was only too happy to drop in and hoped to also get a chance to spend some time gaming with his friend. Adrian could hear the woman he was speaking to, offering to pick up Aaron. But instead, she volunteered to drop Aaron off at the Rockingham Shopping Center, where the two could meet. 9.55 a.m. was the last time anyone would see Aaron alive. Join me now as we take a look into the sudden disappearance of Aaron Page Sweetman, a kind and trusting 18-year-old young man, an unsuspecting victim who unknowingly walked into a trap that had been created for him by two women from different countries, one whom he trusted. Aza, as Aaron was affectionately called by those close to him, was described as having a heart of gold, a bubbly trusting nature, and a high sensitivity for the world around him. But life had been tough for Aaron, growing up. Diagnosed with Asperger's, he quite often had been bullied by other students who found it difficult to understand or accept his differences. But although people hadn't always been kind to Aaron, that never discouraged him from pursuing his dreams. He'd been dreaming of traveling to Japan, which he considered to be one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. In fact, he'd been saving every penny to make that goal possible, while also learning some of the language. As a young adult, things were looking up for Aaron. Although his parents were divorced, he had a good relationship with both of them, and when he turned 18, he moved out and started boarding with a woman who was a member of the church he attended. As Aaron was becoming more independent, he also started studying electronic engineering at TAFE in Perth, Australia. In his earlier years, Aaron had grown up in a suburb of Perth. While living in the neighborhood, Aaron became friends with three other boys who lived across the street with their mother, Trudy Lennon, a single mom living a double life. For many years, Trudy had been a submissive participant in the bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism scene. It was at that time she met her dominant partner, Gemma Lilly. At the age of 18, 
in 2010, UK native Gemma headed to Australia for a two-year working vacation, staying with a family friend, while she worked at a tattoo parlor in Woolworths. Raised in Stamford, England, a town on the River Welland in Lincolnshire, Gemma had a dark childhood. Her father Richard believes it all started after her mother suffered a mental breakdown and joined an extreme religious cult. The cult demanded that all its members give up their possessions and money. Mr. Lilly told Seven's Sunday Night Australia, if you said anything against them, then you got reprisals. He said he, as well as the children, were attacked. They were beaten, locked in a bedroom for days. They had to soil themselves in their bedrooms. Nothing to eat. Richard said he tried for two years to try and fight it, and in the end, he separated from Gemma's mother and gained custody of all their children. Shortly after is when Gemma's fascination with extreme violence seemed to emerge. It was then that she began to watch films about serial killers and dressed up like them while collecting butcher knives as hobbies. In her teenage years, Gemma attended Casterton Business and Enterprise College, where she studied gaming design. At age 15, she began writing a novel. She titled it Playzone, where the protagonist was a serial killer nicknamed S.O.S. Named after the real-life serial killer, David Berkowitz, also known as Son of Sam. She later published the book online under the pen name Sin Demon. One part of the book reads, I felt as though I cannot rest until the blood or the flesh of a screaming, pleading victim is He's gushing out and pulling on the floor. floor, until all roads and streets are stained red and abandoned, and the fear in the backs of everyone's minds and on the tongue of each human left standing is SOS. I cannot shift this belief that the world has become not only ready for me, but it needs me to be ready. SOS was the main character of her book and was the leader of a murder cult. He requested his followers, who he referred to as maggots, to torture and murder people to please him. Gemma's stepmother, Nina Lilly, recalls Gemma being an odd and sinister child who was obsessed with serial killers and murder. Nina, who has since divorced Gemma's father, Richard, said she left the family house because she was so disturbed by Gemma's behavior. Nina told the UK Sun the book she wrote was a big problem, and she found it very disturbing. In the beginning, I said, Fair enough, you want to write a horror story, but I didn't like the contents of it. It was all about torture and very violent, and no empathy for the victims. She always had an obsession with serial killers as a teenager, but she said it was a way of venting her frustration. Richard, her father, didn't feel the same way. He, on the other hand, encouraged her to write and express her creative mind. Gemma's stepmother said that later her father even helped his daughter to design a mask made of black steel 
the one Gemma had envisioned the protagonist of her book, S.O.S., to have worn. In 2012, when Gemma's visa was about to expire in Australia, is when she came up with the plan to secure permanent residence in Australia. During her time in Perth, she'd met a gay man named Gordon Galbraith, who had agreed to marry her. Gemma nicknamed Gordon Gacy because she thought he resembled John Wayne Gacy, the American serial killer. Her father, Richard, flew over for the occasion and even dressed up as Freddy Krueger for the ceremony, while Gemma dressed up as Dexter, the fictitious serial killer from the TV show Dexter. In 2013, while Gemma was working at a tattoo parlor, it is reported that she began making daily visits to a local video rental store where she took out horror movies about various serial killers. Her membership password just happened to be SOS. It was there that Gemma first confided in one of the staff at the store that murdering someone before she turned 25 years old was on her bucket list. At the age of 24, Gemma sent a fangirl letter to actor Robert Englund, who played the character Freddy Krueger in the films A Nightmare on Elm Street, where she wrote, As strange as it may seem, I've always felt Freddy as a father figure. Papa Freddy, my guardian angel. You see, I've not had the best childhood. I know many have had worse. In 2016, Gemma started working as a night shift supervisor at a supermarket in Perth. Through a friend of her husband, Gordon, Gemma eventually met Trudy Lennon. When they met, Gemma gave Trudy a copy of her book, Play Zone, to read, and the two seemed to hit it off, bonding over a mutual desire to lose weight while sharing an interest for the darker side. Just two months after the two met, Gemma heard that Trudy had been living in a less-than-ideal situation and offered Trudy and her boys to move in with her. The gate at 22 Broughton Way in Aurelia, Perth, had a sign that read Elm Street, referencing the horror movie. Inside her home was a Chucky doll from the horror film Child's Play, sitting on the kitchen counter, and framed photographs of serial killers. The two women then continued to live in a dominant and submissive relationship. Trudy promised to fear and respect Gemma, and they soon started to refer to each other by pet names. Gemma referred to Trudy as Corvina, a character Trudy believed had been wakened by her dominant partner. Gemma, on the other hand, went by the name of the killer from her book, Play Zone, SOS. SOS became her signature. The license plate on her motorcycle was 1SOS1. She even stitched SOS into the arm of one of her jackets and tattooed herself as well. She also branded Trudy with the same SOS tattoo. In essence, claiming ownership over her. In a text message to Gemma 
Trudy said. I thought I'd met some true dominance before, but you were running circles around them. Another text from Gemma to Trudy read. It would seem you truly understand my SOS role. In the weeks to follow, the pair started sharing homicidal fantasies. In a journal entry, Gemma confessed to have been fighting off the urge to kill someone since she was a child. Ever since I was 12, the darkness kept cropping up stronger and stronger. I would usually be able to shake the thoughts off. The thought trail I would find myself in would last between five minutes to anywhere up to three weeks. When in this mindset, I would be fighting my urges continuously. This urge to slaughter, to stab, strangle. The style never mattered, but the result would be the same. Murder. To watch the life drain from their eyes. Trudy, who had fallen in love with Gemma, was eager to please her dominant partner and began to encourage Gemma to turn her world of fiction into reality. Trudy wanted to be the one to help Gemma finally check murder from her bucket list before she turned 25, and she had just the right victim in mind. Aaron Page Sweetman, the sweet trusting boy who had grown up across the street from her and her sons for almost 10 years. She knew he would be easy to lure. That's when they started to concoct their sinister plan, which included a shopping list of items for the kill. On June 1st, 2016, Gemma and Trudy agreed that they would both be ready to take the next step in their gruesome endeavor to murder someone. Trudy texted, Seriously, how have you been able to wait this long to take your first? I want to see this start now. You have amazing willpower. The intense feelings that build up every day and the need to release them is strong in me. I can only imagine just how much more intense they are for you. Gemma texted, I've had many very close calls. Trudy, your strength amazes me. It is definitely time. I am ready. You are ready. On three separate occasions, the two made trips to various hardware stores throughout Perth, purchasing items in preparation for their first kill. Their murder kit included a circular saw, bleach, cement, a drop sheet, a large plastic barrel, acetone, and 100 liters of hydrochloric acid. On the morning of June 13th, Trudy dropped her sons off at school before making a phone call to Aaron. Eager to see his friend and hoping to get in some gaming time, he agreed to meet Trudy at the shopping center. Aaron believed that he would be getting picked up by Trudy and her son. However, CCTV footage later obtained showed that when Trudy showed up, there was someone else in the car. As Aaron climbed into the back seat of Trudy's car, 
Footage showed Gemma sitting in the front passenger seat. The following day, Aaron hadn't arrived home, and his landlord was getting worried. Her calls to him were going straight to voicemail, and after not being able to locate him at any of his usual hangout spots, she knew it was time to let his parents know he was missing. Aaron's father, Keith, knew right away something was wrong when he couldn't get in touch with his son either. The two had always been in daily communication with each other. And in fact, just two days before Aaron went missing, Keith had visited his son and they talked about Aaron's plans for the future. The last words he heard from his son were, I love you, Dad. See ya. As police were trying to figure out what had happened to Aaron, they received a phone call from Matthew Stray, who worked with Gemma at Woolworths. He told police she'd shown him a photo of Aaron and said, I did it, didn't I? She also showed him a photo of a tattoo she planned on getting to commemorate her first murder. The investigation also had police looking into the last activity on Aaron's phone, which revealed that Trudy had been the last person to call him on the morning of his disappearance. On June 20th, eight days after Aaron first went missing, his phone records and the tip they received from Gemma's co-worker led detectives to 22 Broughton Way. When Gemma and Trudy arrived back home that day, the police were there waiting for them. Immediately, Gemma attempted to hop onto one of her motorbikes before detectives were able to stop her and ask if she wouldn't mind letting them have a look around her house. After showing them inside, Gemma escorted them to the backyard, where she showed them the fresh concrete and tiles they had laid to function as their new backyard patio. When police asked Gemma where she had been on the morning of June 13th, she told them she'd been out on a long bike ride to Mundering, which was about an hour away from Aurelia. Soon, the detective decided to split Trudy and Gemma up, interviewing them each in separate rooms of the house. Trudy had initially said she hadn't seen or spoken to Aaron the day he went missing, but gradually changed her story and told them she had spoken to him, had picked him up, and had brought him to the house. However, said she had fallen asleep, and when she woke up, he was gone. In a second interview, both women's stories changed. A detective asked Trudy if Gemma had been trying to make fiction reality, a murder cult. He asked her, Would you agree with that? Yes, she answered. She often wishes she could do what she wants, but what society doesn't allow. The detective then asked if Gemma had groomed her so that on Monday, June 13th, she would deliver Aaron to her. Trudy answered, yes, again. While Trudy was pointing the finger at Gemma, Gemma was pointing the finger back at her. Gemma told detectives she had never met or heard of Aaron before that day, 
Trudy had brought him back to her home. She said Trudy had mentioned to her that she might bring a friend by who was showing an interest in BDSM. She told detectives that Trudy had indicated he was embarrassed about it, but viewed her as a mentor. Gemma said they met up with Aaron at about 10 a.m. on June 13th at the Rockingham Shopping Center and drove him back to her place. While on the way there, she said she tried to make small talk with him and asked how long he'd been exploring the scene and if he'd done any research. But Gemma said he didn't answer her. Instead, he asked how Trudy's son was. Gemma said when they got inside their home, they had a cup of coffee. She drank hers in the kitchen while Trudy and Aaron sat on the sofa in the living room. Gemma said after drinking her coffee, she started to feel dizzy and went into another bedroom to watch the seventh season of The Simpsons. She said she hadn't intended on falling asleep, but didn't even get past one episode. The next thing she remembered was being woken up by Trudy around two o'clock in the afternoon. After she got up and walked into the kitchen, she said she realized Aaron was gone and asked Trudy if he left. Trudy said Aaron had gotten a text message from his dad, so he had to leave. Gemma then said she noticed the couch in the living room was outside and that a piece of carpet had been removed from the floor. Furious, she asked Trudy what had happened. Trudy then explained that one of her cats had urinated on them. During her entire interview, Gemma was laughing and joking with officers. When she had trouble remembering the day Aaron went missing, she said it was an occasion when you need a dear diary. Both women were continuing to live in a fictional world with the stories they were dishing out to detectives. The reality of what really happened was far more evil and horrific. While investigating, police discovered CCTV footage recorded by Gemma's own home security system. She'd installed a motion-sensing camera system at four different points outside her home wanting to secure surveillance on the six motorbikes she kept in her garage. One of the cameras happened to look towards the commonly used back entrance of the house. Footage captured showed Aaron entering the back door of the house with Trudy and Gemma at 10 a.m. on June 13th. 30 minutes later, the footage showed Trudy leaving the home, only to go back inside again this time carrying a large knife inside a sheath. The surveillance cameras were then switched off. In order to get to the truth of where Aaron was and what had happened to him, detectives would have to rely on their own investigation. Inside their house, they discovered that Gemma had prepared a secret room that had been concealed. Inside, the room was bare. The walls were covered with blue tarps. There was also a gurney in the corner of the tiled room. Found in the garage 
was a pot containing a piece of meat and hydrochloric acid, suggesting to police that the couple had been experimenting with how quickly flesh would dissolve in acid. Inside the home, investigators found a tool belt that belonged to Gemma, which included various knives, scalpels, and a bone saw. Also discovered was an alphabetized handwritten list of torture techniques, including branding, castration, force-feeding, scalping, and suffocation. But it would be Aaron himself who would finally give away the gruesome actions of the two women that morning. After forensic investigators removed the fresh concrete and tiles Gemma had laid down in the backyard that week, they found Aaron. Well, this is a tragic development in the case of missing teenager Aaron Payich. Police say his body has been found in the Aurelia home behind me, buried in the backyard. Those investigations led major crime squad detectives to execute a search warrant at a premises in Broughton Way, Aurelia, during the evening of Monday the 20th of June 2016. During this search, a newly laid concrete pad was located. The concrete was removed and the body of Aaron was found in a shadow grave. Two females who reside at the address have both been charged with Aaron's murder and will appear in the Perth Magistrates Court tomorrow morning. An autopsy would later tell the real story of what had happened to Aaron that morning he disappeared. His body showed that there had been an attempt to strangle him from behind. He also suffered two stab wounds, to his neck and one to his chest. Defensive wounds were also found on his arms and hands, indicating he had fought hard for his life. But the 112-pound teenage boy was no match for Trudy and Gemma. When investigators were later able to piece together through DNA, Aaron's autopsy, CCTV footage, parts of the women's testimonies, and other evidence were the events that actually happened. CCTV showed both Trudy and Gemma making purchases at a hardware store on different days, weeks leading up to Aaron's murder. On June 13th, CCTV footage also showed Aaron at the shopping center and hopping inside Trudy's car with her and Gemma around 10 a.m. Security footage from Gemma's home then showed the three of them entering her residence. It's believed that Aaron was then offered some coffee as he sat down at their computer to install the software and games Trudy had requested. While he was distracted, Gemma attacked him from behind. Aaron fought back. A bite mark and scratches on Gemma's arm would later show that. Also, he struggled so much that the cord broke, which is when Trudy pinned him down. That's when Gemma decided to finish what she had started using a knife. And she stabbed Aaron three times. After it's believed that the pair moved Aaron's body to the concealed room, that's when they cut the section out of the carpet in the living room 
and covered the bare spot with a rug and a couch. Detectives then discovered more CCTV footage showing Gemma purchasing tiles. After digging a hole in their backyard, they placed Aaron's body in a shallow grave. And disturbingly, it was discovered after interviewing Trudy's son that she had made him help them with the tiling. He had absolutely no idea that the remains of his friend lay beneath the soil. The day after Aaron's body was found, the couple were both arrested and charged with murder. While Gemma pleaded not guilty, Trudy admitted to being an accessory. When interviewed by Seven's Sunday night program, Gemma's father Richard refused to believe his daughter was capable of cold-blooded murder. Richard said, when he asked his daughter if she'd killed Aaron, she told him, No, 100% I did not. With the emotion in her eyes, he said he believed her. He was adamant that his daughter wasn't lying to him. I know my Gemma, he said. She hasn't got a bad bone in her body. He said he told his daughter that, Whatever happens, we'll get through this together. He said he told her that if she played a part in any of it, to bring it out now and we'll deal with it. Richard continued on by saying, there was, yes, a body in her backyard, which is horrendous. In my eyes, it was a setup from the start to finish. I brought her up to be truthful and honest and caring, and that is the real Gemma. She's a wonderful person. If Gemma had admitted it to me, then I would have to support her. And if she needed help mentally or psychologically, I would help her get it. He said she swore to him that she hadn't been involved and there wasn't any evidence against her. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. Aaron's father, Keith, told reporters that Aaron's struggle against his killers was messy and provided police with all the evidence they needed. He went on to say that he considers his son to be a hero because if he hadn't have struggled and if the wire that Gemma had used to try and strangle Aaron didn't break, she could have possibly choked him to death and gotten away with this easily because there would have been less evidence. He was a hero, Keith said again. There's no more people that will be taken by those two. The day after Aaron's murder, Gemma had sent Trudy a text message commenting on the euphoria she had felt having killed her first victim. I'm seeing things I haven't seen before. I'm feeling things I haven't felt before. It's incredibly empowering. Thank you. Trudy said, You're welcome, SOS. During Gemma and Trudy's trial, 
a handwritten note by Gemma was presented, where she said she believed she had the power to manipulate those around her. Scripting situations is easy for me now. Maybe I enjoy doing this because when I was young, I never had the ability to script my own life, and so I just take it too far and script others without them even knowing that I am doing it. They believe they control their speech and action when they are just mere puppets scripted to my invisible play. While on the stand, Gemma told the court that her murder exchanges with Trudy were merely the two of them role-playing for her next book. A sequel she said she had been writing to her play's own novel. She also said that she believed Trudy had drugged her the morning of June 13th and that she'd fallen asleep while her partner murdered Aaron. She had also claimed that she had laid down the concrete and tiles without knowing there was a body underneath it. Gemma's colleague from Woolworths, who had reported her disturbing claim to him, took to the witness stand, saying she'd confessed to murdering Aaron and sounded excited about it. She also told him that she thought the police were dumb and would never catch her. Gemma's co-worker then told the court that he had indicated to Gemma that he was horrified and suggested he was going to go to the police, to which she then texted him saying, she may have to make the problem go away. She then later texted him again and said she'd made the whole story up. Another co-worker of Gemma's also testified, saying she had told him she desired to become a serial killer and she wanted to leave her mark. In order to gain some further insight into how Gemma became a calculated murderer, we reached out to Tim Watson Monroe, an Australian criminal psychologist who's worked in the area of criminal psychology for over 40 years. Over the course of his career, Tim has assessed some of the most disturbing criminal minds. He's worked with over 30,000 clients, including some of Australia's highest profile cases, such as the Huddle Street Massacre, which happened in Melbourne in 1987. A man named Julian Knight murdered seven people and injured an additional 19. Tim has also served on a number of academic and advisory boards and is the author of two books where he shares his experiences as a criminal psychologist, Dancing with Demons, and A Shrink in the Clink. Here are some of the thoughts Tim shared with us on Gemma Lilly. Based on what I've read, she's clearly in the old parlance a psychopath, somebody who has no remorse, somebody who uh, had fantasized about murdering people during her infancy. And it raises the age-old question, is it nature or nurture? Who would know? But certainly, from what I've read, her mother was very disturbed and she was subjected to physical and psychological torment before her parents separated. Her father, too, in many ways, seems to have enabled her behaviour in terms of supporting her fascination with horror and horror films. So I, I suspect it's a mixture of both. 
bad genes uh, enabling in the environment and of course the things that she was exposed to as a child perhaps set up the anger uh, and the desire to um, as she put it see blood on the streets we asked him if he thought Gemma felt a connection to the main character SOS that she described in the book she wrote well I think fantasy became fused with reality and she did become the character it was a form of dissociation in some ways, not as a mental state defense, but she was living vicariously through SOS, and that enabled her probably to take the next step in terms of the murder she committed. Tim told us that with brutal cases like this, suspects often undergo a psychological evaluation. It's clear she didn't have a mental state defense available to her, because if it was, they would have used it. There's a conspiracy between two women to act out on a fantasy, and uh, they preyed upon somebody who trusted them, somebody who was psychologically vulnerable, who was on the autism spectrum, and um, it was really a very shocking crime. But she wasn't crazy. She was bad, not mad. Weeks leading up to Aaron's murder, Gemma and Trudy spent time purchasing some of the most horrific items you could imagine in their ploy to take Aaron's life and dispose of his body. But in the end, they didn't use any of those items. We asked him why he thought that might be. Badly planned crime, often the reality is more horrendous than the fantasy. Maybe they were satisfied just by the thrill of killing him and they didn't need to take those extra steps. I mean, invariably in these types of crimes, there's a sexual component to it. It's about control, it's about power. She was a dominant partner in a sort of a BDSM scene. And so uh, controlling somebody uh, and then taking the next step to murdering them may have been sufficient for them. People may start out with a rich fantasy life and they may masturbate uh, to the fantasies they find them exciting. And at some point, it's not enough. They need to take the next step. It may be rape, it may be child abuse. Or in some cases, such as hers, it can be murder. So they fantasize about abducting this person, seducing him into their home, uh, saying the computer needs repairing, uh, taking advantage of his vulnerabilities, and then they live out the fantasy because it's exciting. And uh, some of the material I read suggested that she had stated that she'd never felt more euphoric in her life, that uh, her bucket list wish had been fulfilled. And uh, so in a very sick way, it's given her a sense of fulfillment uh, by committing this crime in the company of another person who clearly, too, is excited by it, but in many ways, I suspect, controlled because of the nature of their relationship. After a five-week trial on November 1st, 2017, it took the jury only two hours to convict Gemma and Trudy of Aaron's murder. Aaron's family, who had been there for the entire trial, requested that both women receive life sentences. On February 28, 2018, both received a life sentence with a minimum of 28 years for the calculated murder of Aaron Page Sweetman. During their sentencing, the judge presiding addressed the murderers. 
Judge Stephen Hall described the 18-year-old's murder as callous and premeditated, saying the pair had shown no apparent doubts or hesitation and committed the murder in the pursuit of their own desires. In his sentencing remarks, Judge Hall said while it was not clear who had delivered the fatal injuries to the 18-year-old, he held both women accountable. In the end, it doesn't matter who did the stabbing because in my view, this was the carrying out of a shared criminal plan to kill. Whichever of you caused the fatal wounds was acting for you both and was aided by the other. Miss Lilly has indicated she intends to appeal her conviction. The women will be eligible for parole in 2044. Keith and Aaron's stepmother, Veronica Desmond, told news reporters that they were emotionally devastated and felt numb about the future. Keith admitted to feeling haunted with the thoughts about what his son went through in his final moments, and that despite the years Gemma and Trudy would spend in prison, nothing would bring his son back. I'm devastated. I'm lost, Aaron's father said. I don't know how to continue from here on, but I have to for Aaron. We were very lucky and blessed with a loving, kind son. Unfortunately, it was that part of his nature that made it easy for them to get him. Aaron's mother, Sharon, also spoke to reporters and said that it was heartbreaking to see what had happened to her boy. You can't get it out of your head, and it will be a lifetime for me. They have taken an innocent boy from his loved ones. He was my precious little boy, my firstborn. He was full of life. He loved life. She continued on to say that Gemma and Trudy were disgusting animals for what they did. They don't deserve the air they breathe, she said. In Tim's professional opinion, we wanted to know if he thought Gemma would have continued trying to murder people if she hadn't been caught for Aaron's murder. I have little doubt it would have continued. Uh, if you look at the histories of the serial killers, the Bundys of the world, uh, you know, Son of Sam, all these people, once they get the taste for it, there may be a period of stability in their lives, but inevitably the demons start dancing again and they start thinking about it and then they find another victim and uh, it keeps going until they're caught. And this is why inevitably there's generally a, a very large body count when they are detected. There are active serial killers in Australia and no doubt in North America and they move from state to state, kids disappear runaways and so on, and uh, they may well be the victims of serial killers. But I think in this case, if they're not being caught, inevitably they would have started talking about it again and um, in all likelihood found another victim. Since being in prison, Trudy has been attacked twice by other inmates. Two days ago, Trudy Lennon suffered severe burns after another inmate doused her with boiling water a suspected revenge attack for what happened to Aaron. Today, boxer and anti-one-punch campaigner Danny Green took to social media saying, my hat is off to whoever carried out this act, and I hope you get an infection and die a horrid and slow 
and obscenely painful death. The post has been seen by thousands, including Aaron's dad and stepmom, who say Trudy Lennon got what she deserved. My message to you is you're the scum of the earth. You're worse than pig. While some believe Danny Green has gone too far and is even condoning violence against women, others are praising him for his comments and want him to run for parliament. The second assault resulted in her being hospitalised for three weeks. The water, which had been splashed all over Trudy's back, chest and arms, resulted in severe burns to 21% of her body. The attack happened after another prisoner said she saw Trudy laughing with another inmate, and it pushed her button. She said she had been sickened by the callous thrill kill of a vulnerable teenager. Trudy's attacker pled guilty to two counts of an act or omission causing bodily harm. In August of 2018, Gemma appeared in court in a bid to have her conviction overturned. In an interview with Perth Now, Aaron's father expressed his disgust. You would think that the people in charge would have a little bit more intelligence than that, considering that Gemma Lilly admitted and opened up to her workmates on how she did the killing of our son. He felt that although criminals have a right to an appeal, Lily's conviction was a no-brainer. Aaron's stepmother, Veronica Desmond, added, the only fair outcome of Gemma's appeal would be for her to have extra time on her sentence. Let Aaron rest in peace. Just drop it and leave it alone. You did what you did and serve your time. Lawyers for Gemma argued in Western Australia's highest court on April 10, 2019, that her conviction should be overturned because inadmissible evidence was allowed at her trial. Today, Lily's lawyer claimed evidence was put to the jury in a way that prejudiced her. That included a fantasy novel she wrote as a 16-year-old about a serial killer named SOS, which showed she had a tendency and desire to kill. We asked him if he thought the book Gemma wrote as a teenager was relevant to her trial. Well, it's a legal argument that would be ultimately determined by the court, but um I think it's poppycock. <laughs> the age of 16, uh, certainly you're into conceptual thinking. You may not be able to be tried as an adult, but the fact is she committed the crimes as an adult, and this book demonstrates what was going on her in, in her mind in her mid-adolescence. Psychologically speaking, I think it's valid, but of course the lawyers may say that it shouldn't have been admitted. It would seem to me, however, that the evidence beyond that is overwhelming in any event. Whether the book made a material difference to the ultimate conviction, I think, is debatable. One of the appeal judges said it was still relevant because at the time of the murder, she'd been calling herself SOS. Lily's lawyer also argued her large collection of knives didn't necessarily make her more likely to stab someone. We asked for Tim's thoughts on that too. 
you know, I've worked with thousands of lawyers over the years. It's their job to do the best they can for their client, but it would seem something like trying to have the knives excluded, particularly when the victim was stabbed to death, is really clutching at straws. But I guess that will ultimately be determined by the court. A decision on Gemma's appeal will be handed down later on this year. On June 23rd, 2016, more than 200 people came together to hold a candlelight vigil in memory of Aaron. After a woman sang Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, there was a moment of silence before balloons were released into the sky. While family and friends shed tears grieving for the loss of Aaron, they each took turns sharing memories of him. Aaron's stepmother said Aaron was a fun-loving boy with beautiful blue eyes. No one could wipe the smile off Aaron's face. It didn't matter what anyone said to him. He was just happy. He didn't have a bad thing to say about people. He was a good person, a good soul. He was beautiful, lovely boy. My heart aches and breaks for Aaron. Aaron's father Keith said that he wishes he could trade his life for his sons. We loved each other. We always said we loved each other before we parted. I take a great deal of solace in the fact that I was able to say that to him as one of the last things. One of Aaron's closest friends named Joshua shared, He was one of the first friends I had when I moved over here when I was four. He would come over to my place a lot. He was a really funny guy. Joshua said his friend was a positive and resilient person. He would never let anything get him down, really. On July 12, 2016, a service was held for Aaron, where over 250 relatives and friends gathered to say their goodbyes. The pastor of the church Aaron was a member of said that if Aaron was having a bad day, you would never know it. Aaron's teacher from primary school remembered him having his entire class laughing with the stories he would tell. She said she could never figure out which of the stories he had made up and which of the ones were true because of his quirky imagination. Before Aaron's coffin was carried out of the church, everyone was given an opportunity to write messages and prayers to him. As his coffin passed through the crowd of his family and friends, six white doves and balloons were released. Despite his Asperger's and learning difficulties, he had a beautiful heart and would help anyone. He was one of the funniest kids I ever met. To Azza, my blue-eyed boy, thank you for the years of love you gave me. I'm sorry, mate, I couldn't protect you.
There are a lot of vulnerable members of our community, the elderly, young children, people with disabilities. When you come across someone who is vulnerable, think of Azza. Don't laugh at them, don't ridicule them, don't isolate them. Before we cover any case, we always try to do our best to get into contact with family members and friends of the victims, hoping to provide them with an opportunity to tell their loved one's story. In the case of Aaron Page Sweetman, we had tried connecting with both of his parents prior to producing the episode, Sharon Page and Keith Sweetman. Coincidentally, we just happened to be putting Aaron's episode together the same week Gemma Lilly was appealing her conviction in court. So as you can imagine, there was a lot going on for Aaron's parents. So knowing that, it made a lot of sense to us that we hadn't heard from them. That's why we were surprised to get a message from Aaron's mom a few days after we released the episode, agreeing to speak with us. She was noticeably quite raw, just having everything freshly stirred up again with Gemma's appeal. Sharon took us back to the day she first heard that her precious son was missing. Her ex-husband, Keith, called to give her the news. I said, what? What do you mean he's missing? He hasn't come home. And uh, that's when the media come around and I had to go on the media and ask if people see my son, you know, and from there it's just, I knew something bad happened. He had a phone and everything, no phone calls or anything. He didn't use his bank card, you know, that something was wrong. And the days continued and days continued that no one's seen him. And uh, it's just more worsening for you. Took a toll on me, I was getting sick and I couldn't focus, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. Seven days after Aaron went missing, detectives located his body. The following morning, Sharon received a call from Keith telling her that Aaron had been murdered. I literally dropped my phone and I just fell on the floor. And it still taunts me at the moment with knowing all this, you know. And people wonder how I managed to have a lot of strength, you know, but my strength's there, but I hide the fact that I'm actually in pain. Sharon was present for the trials of Gemma Lilly and Trudy Lennon and told us what it was like to sit in the same courtroom with the people who murdered her child. You just wanted to jump out of there and just do something to a because of what they've done. But I maintained my sanity. Just looked at them going, just how could they? How could they just take someone's life, you know? We asked Sharon, if either Gemma or Trudy showed any signs of emotion during the trial. Nothing. None at all. They're just pure evil. Sharon was also present for Gemma's appeal. We wondered if perhaps Gemma had shown any emotion the second time around. No emotions at all. She was just sitting there still. There's nothing there. We asked Sharon how she felt about Gemma making an appeal at all. She's stupid. She knows she's done it. And the court, you know, I think they're not letting them do this, continue with this. 
she deserves to rot there and that's the way it should stay. One of the many reasons we find it so important to connect with family members and friends of the victims is because we're able to gain a better appreciation for who these individuals were and why they will be so greatly missed by those who loved and knew them. The same is true for Aaron, which is why we were so thankful when his mother got in touch with us. Sharon told us that she had Aaron when she was 20 years old and was her first child born. He was full of beans when he was little. You know, he enjoyed everything. His favorite toy was Buzz Lightyear. He wouldn't let go of it. He was hardly cried. He basically was a more happy baby. He definitely changed the way of my life and brings brightness to it. We asked Sharon when she started noticing that Aaron might be having some challenges. Um, earlier on, but, you know, it's hard to tell when they're babies. You think it's the way they are. Uh, he was a late walker. He started walking after he was one. But um, it didn't worry me. He was still my baby. When Aaron was about three years old and was in primary school, teachers suspected he might need some help later on. But they said just let him see how he progressed when he gets a little bit older, you know, so they can focus more on it. I was a bit of a low learner as well. He's still a smart boy. He was still bright and cheery. He didn't care. We asked Sharon if she could tell us some more fond memories of Aaron when he was growing up. When he was six, he loved playing hide and seek on me. He sometimes liked scaring me because I thought he took off outside, but he was hiding in the cupboard with his Buzz Lightyear trying to pretend to be a superhero. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you. I said, well, where are you? Like, you have to find me. And I said, well, you're supposed to be rescuing me. You're supposed to come and get me. You know, like games he loved. Superhero games. And we used to, he used to love the parks. He used to love animals, you know, and it was great. His favourite colour was blue at that time because he always wore his Buzz Lightyear outfit. It's come with blue in that on it. And he goes, oh, Lisa's got blue on it. And his PJs were blue. <laughs> Uh, on his birthday, so he was so happy that the way I made the cakes and he loved the chocolate and cream, so I made him chocolate and cream. Couldn't afford much, but he still didn't care as long as he got something that, you know, that was from mum. Sharon told us that every day continues to be a struggle, but she is keeping strong for her other three children and for Aaron. And I think positive for my kids and, and think, you know, remember Aaron as my bright boy and he always will be and he's my angel. He may be gone, but he will never be forgotten. We try to think that something like this will never happen to us. None of us can imagine having someone we love murdered. We hope by including the voices of the people who have been impacted by these violent crimes and hearing intimately about the person taken from them, that when we learn about a murder, we'll remember that on the other side of that horrific crime, there is a grieving family, a grieving community, individuals that will never completely heal 
but we'll try to move forward. We'd like to give a special thank you to Tim Watson Monroe for trying to help us understand the actions of Trudy and Gemma. If you'd like to find out more about Tim's work and his books, we've included links in our show notes. And thanks to Lauren and Susie for voicing Gemma and Trudy's messages. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, One Eye Open. Hello, I'm Steffi, the host of One Eye Open my very own true crime podcast. I write, research and produce each episode from my fancy little room here in England. Join me as I delve deeply into mysterious murders and painful punishments. The terrible tales are real, and although dark, I'm sure they'll appeal. I've been described as the Mary Poppins of true crime, but you'll need more than a spoonful of sugar to help these crimes go down. I'd recommend a gin and tonic, a large one. If you like your true crime served with ice, lemon and a touch of class, then come and find me, Steffi, on my podcast One Eye Open. I'll be waiting for you. And Dumb and Busted Dumb and Busted Pop Quiz Hotshot. Kay hit me. A pervy arsonist who has a weird thing for men's shoes. Episode 5, Firestarter. Yes. Twins who box for work and murder for fun. Episode 42, Cray Cray. Yes. Last one. Creepiest creeper who terrorizes a family with handwritten letters. Episode 39, Watch Out. Hell yeah. For true crime stories of insane stupidity and exceptional genius, listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run